Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Alice Su, The Economist senior China correspondent based in Taipei. I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. China has stopped reporting most COVID data, but local official estimates suggest that tens, maybe hundreds of millions of Chinese have caught the virus in recent weeks. And we do know that tragically, hospitals and crematoria around the country are overrun. With so little official transparency on infection and death numbers, can we get a grasp on what's really happening? This is first and foremost a human disaster, but some big questions do have to be asked. Why did China's rulers do so little to prepare for this outbreak, which was widely predicted? And with avoidable deaths mounting, could private heartbreak for Chinese families become a crisis of legitimacy for the Communist Party? To find out, we'll be talking to one of our colleagues who's been on the ground in China visiting hospitals and crematoria. We'll also speak to an expert on Chinese public health policy who's based in the U.S. And we'll hear how people from around China are reacting to this current wave of the pandemic. This is Drumta from The Economist. David, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm croaky, but I do not have COVID, which is good because I'm in Hong Kong in transit and I'm planning to fly to Beijing very soon. And I have to have a negative test to arrive, even though the Chinese capital is absolutely full of cases of COVID. That's the kind of the weird end times logic that we are now in. Alice, how are you? I'm well. Um, I mean, that's amazing that you're on your way and you won't have to quarantine. We've both just come back from two weeks of holiday, but I have to say it was also Difficult to not think about China and what was happening there throughout the last two weeks because I was getting so many messages from family members and friends who seem to have all gotten infected with COVID in the last few weeks, whether they were in Beijing or Shanghai or other parts of China. And I think what was really stressful and alarming was the sense that people were asking, you know, is there any way to get medicine from abroad? I just felt very helpless. I mean, thankfully for me, everyone I know has recovered and is okay. But I, I am really worried and I want to know what's happening on the ground. We don't know how bad it is, certainly from the outside, because the Chinese numbers just do not add up anymore. For the last few years, China was publishing numbers so meticulously every day on how many cases and contacts there were. And then all of a sudden, it's just like there's this black hole of data where, you know, we can't find out what's happening. If you look at the latest figures published by the World Health Organization, on January 4th, they said that Hong Kong alone reported 381 deaths and 30,000 cases in the last seven days. And mainland China, which has a population nearly 200 times larger than Hong Kong's, 
reported no cases and no deaths. And we just know that that's not true, even anecdotally from our individual networks of friends and family. We know that that can't possibly be true. And so what they've done is they basically redefined COVID deaths. They've imposed this incredibly narrow definition that you are only a COVID death if you die from respiratory failure directly caused by COVID with lung damage from the virus confirmed by a chest scan. And the WHO's emergencies director has said that that is too narrow and underrepresents the virus, which is actually dangerous for the world. It's also a political act, because let's be clear, China has spent three years justly talking about the very high death numbers in places like America or in Europe. But those numbers were based on very broad definitions. So in America, the official guidance to doctors is that if COVID-19 played a role in a death, then it should be specified as COVID on the death certificate. And that's how you get to a million dead in America, which is a terribly high number. But China is using a completely different system, which is giving us no deaths when we know that crematoria are absolutely overrun. For us, you know, as we're trying to figure out what's happening, I think really there is no replacement for going to hospitals, going to crematoria and trying to talk to people and to see what's going on. That's why we've invited our colleague, Gabriel Crossley, to come on Drum Tower today. Gabriel, hi. Welcome to Drum Tower. Hi, Alice. So you have been in China throughout the entire pandemic, but also in particular in the last few weeks. You're the only one among us who has been there on the ground in Beijing and in other parts of the country. Tell us, what have you been doing? What is going on? So uh, recently we went to Dezhou. It's a small city in Shandong province in eastern China, not too far from Beijing. It's a place where many locals will be migrating to bigger cities to work, maybe only come back a few times a year. And then over the next few weeks, it'll be filling up as people come back for Chinese New Year later in January. And COVID seemed to reach smaller cities like Dezhou a little later than Beijing or Shanghai. So we were expecting it maybe not to be as far along in terms of infections, but most of the people we met there had already caught COVID. Pharmacies there were largely out of fever medicines, although one I visited still had a bit. It was opening up packets of ibuprofen inside the shop, and then they were repackaging them in paper envelopes to make sure they could go a bit further. And the hospitals in Dojo were packed with elderly patients. This is outside one of Dojo's biggest hospitals where we saw an elderly woman being lifted down out of an ambulance. She was covered in blankets and breathing quickly. And one of her relatives was having an anxious conversation on the phone because they just discovered that there were no beds left in this hospital, so they would have to find another one fast. You can hear her saying, she can't get off here. So they loaded her back up and the ambulance drove off again. This sort of tells you just how much under pressure a lot of hospitals in small cities are. So outside other hospitals, intensive care units, we saw groups of relatives waiting, some for several days, to see if their elderly family members would make it. They were sleeping on mats outside the ICU wards. One big change that's happened recently is China has gone from mass testing entire cities for COVID to barely testing anyone. So people didn't really know if they had COVID or not. This is from outside an emergency room inside one of the hospitals we visited. 
they packed it full of beds and wheelchairs to squeeze more people in. It's full of elderly patients that are all breathing from oxygen tanks. Nurses outside said that they'd been working around the clock for days and that more severe patients were arriving every day. Yeah, but this all sounds like the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, right? This is so similar to what we saw in the chaos in that first outbreak in the city of Wuhan. How representative do you think these scenes in Dojo are of things happening elsewhere in China? There's reporting from lots of different places which seems to show many cities are seeing very similar scenes. So this epidemic seemed to kick off in big cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou in the south. And then the first wave of infections may have already peaked in these places, but it's going to take much longer for the wave to peak in smaller inland cities or in the countryside. So pressure is likely to increase in those areas over the next few weeks. And they also have much weaker medical systems with far fewer doctors, far fewer intensive care units, far fewer supplies of drugs. And the millions of people who will be traveling over the New Year holidays are going to speed this spread up. Gabriel, I'm I'm really curious to hear, did you get a chance to talk to people at the hospitals, the people whose family members were waiting for ICU spots? And, you know, kind of what was the mood like? Because I remember back in 2020 in Wuhan, a lot of people told me, you know, they felt like they were abandoned. They were just really angry, feeling like they suddenly had to deal with all of this on their own. And, you know, the government didn't really take care of them. And I'm curious, you know, did you find that kind of anger or frustration? Just what kind of emotion were people expressing? Yeah, there's a strange contrast, I suppose, between the stress relatives in hospitals that we were met and the way that China is waking up again after the immediate surge of COVID. So you have all of these worried families in hospitals wondering if their elderly relatives are going to make it. But at the same time, people are going back to fill restaurants and shops. There are quite a lot of lighthearted posts on social media about people having caught COVID and then gotten over it. But yeah, there's also a lot of confusion and some anger about how fast the government dropped its COVID restrictions and how many people's elderly relatives are now in hospital. Some of the mood though is actually quite fatalistic. We chatted with one funeral director in Dojo who gave us a lift in his car back to the city from the crematorium. He says he's seeing deaths increasing by around 20 to 30% since COVID restrictions were dropped in December. The report in Shanghai actually, which is probably further along in the timeline of infections, it also has a large elderly population that crematoriums are seeing even higher uptick in demand. But during the journey, this funeral director said that the government has protected us for years and that was great, but they can't lock down forever. And if you open up, then these deaths are going to happen. That's so interesting. And let's talk about another aspect of this, which is that, you know, foreign journalists and Chinese journalists trying to verify the real death numbers in this total sort of information vacuum imposed by the party There's been some pushback, right, from regular Chinese who think that it's inappropriate or intrusive. You had an experience a bit like that, I think, at a cremation site in Beijing. Police seem to be turning up at crematoriums to dissuade visitors. And China's state media is complaining that the West is being unfair on China for reporting on on the public health situation. And yeah, so one interesting point of view I encountered was from a guy I talked to who worked near a crematorium. He said that deaths were simply not an appropriate subject for the news, whether they were COVID-related or not. 
Thank you for your reporting and we'll be having you on again very soon, I hope. Thank you. If you guys want to read more of Gabriel's reporting and to keep up with our China coverage in general, you can follow our weekly newsletter on China. It's also called Drum Tower, and you can sign up for it at economist.com slash drum newsletter. And what Gabriel was talking about, that kind of sense that it is China bashing to ask how badly things are going. I think we have to really kind of wrestle with that, that that is a real objection from a lot of Chinese people. It's not a million miles away from some of the hostility we saw, you know, in other partisan environments. Things get very tribal. People do not like to be judged by outsiders. But I think we do, as a world, as people covering China, we do have to judge the depths of this policy failure because it is an astonishing policy failure. And let's not forget that in the second half of last year, as we saw Omicron, this really infectious variant, testing zero COVID, and I had conversations with senior scientists who said, China will lose control. It cannot continue with this policy of trying to find every case and put them in quarantine, which is the core of zero COVID. And that would happen sometime in the autumn, sometime in the early winter. You know, we started thinking about the scenarios. Would China try and tweak its policies? Would China try and plan a kind of orderly exit by getting people already vaccinated, by stocking up on drugs, by getting the hospitals ready? The worst case scenario just happened so fast that I think it was a shock, even though it was on our list of things that could happen, that they crashed out. And just this entire machine that Alice, you and I saw controlling every aspect of ordinary life in China for three years, the machine just kind of packed up and went home overnight. And you had the you know, state media saying, you know, your responsibility for your health is your own. So I think we have a right and a duty to ask, how did this public policy failure happen? And will there be political costs for Xi Jinping, the man who was called the commander-in-chief of a people's war against COVID, the man who told world leaders at the United Nations that, you know, how you handled COVID was a test of your governance system. And I think we also need to be honest and say that it's possible that there will be no visible political costs, that the, the machine will do the job that it always does, and the Communist Party will point to other reasons to be proud of living in China run by the Communist Party. Gabriel reminds us there's a lot of fatalism out there. A lot of Chinese people, when times get hard, they just put their heads down and try and look after themselves and their families as best they can. I'm really struck by what Gabriel was saying about the discrepancy between a lot of people, maybe younger people in China who have gotten infected and have just gotten better and are feeling like, okay, things are back to normal and we can have our normal lives again. It reminds me of what has happened in many other countries where you reach a point where people are fed up with COVID and they don't want to live with the lockdowns and with the restrictions anymore. And they say, you know, pandemic is over. It's over for us. And then it does actually feel like it's over for a large portion of society, you know, the healthy, the young, the strong, and they do go back to living their normal lives. But if you go into the hospitals and you go into the ICUs, you see that that is not the case at all for the elderly and the vulnerable. And and so in some ways, you know, what's happening in China is quite familiar. I think it's worth noting, we're not criticizing the Communist Party for exiting from zero COVID and learning to live with the virus. We're saying that it's really shocking that they did that with no preparation at all and incredibly suddenly. And the way that they've done it, just walking away and letting the virus rip, is exactly the policy that they spent three years saying they could not possibly do in China because it's such a large country with weak hospitals and many old people, it would be wicked and immoral to just live with the virus. 
And then in the matter of days, they said they're now living with the virus. And, you know, you can follow state media, official party media, like the People's Daily, the most authoritative party newspaper, right up until almost the last day of November. They had these thundering commentaries about we're not loosening. We're actually getting stricter. Uh, we're going to keep with this incredibly strict policy. We're going to stamp out every outbreak. And then maybe three, four days later, you had officials saying, oh, no, it's like a common cold. It doesn't matter so much. And that's not true. It's actually really dangerous for some vulnerable people. And so this screeching U-turn is just the worst possible way to crash out of a policy that they'd kind of imposed for the last three years. So, David, you're totally correct in your analysis there. I mean, it's a really dramatic and unexpected U-turn. And yet what's striking is that people on the ground are reacting in different ways, some with anger, but many others just accepting it and even celebrating it. That's right. And look, one way to understand this whole pandemic is that the virus, it's almost like there are two different viruses that run through populations at the same time. For most people, younger, healthier people, COVID is not a killer, particularly if you've got some vaccination. And so that's why you can hear young people quite legitimately celebrating the end of the strict, harsh lockdowns of the last three years in uh, the city of Nanjing at New Year. But in that same city of Nanjing, there are hospitals filled with frightened old people dying because the hospitals were not prepared in time by a government that just left them. Because just as there's one virus that runs through most healthy people and isn't a killer, when it hits old people who are not properly vaccinated, COVID is a killer. You have these two twin pandemics in a China that has kind of two completely different health systems. There's relatively rich cities on the coast like Beijing, like Shanghai, with good hospitals, you get into the interior, into rural areas, and the vast majority of doctors don't have university degrees. They might have saline drips. They're trying to cure this with things like antibiotics, which have no effect on the virus. It's an absolute tragedy. And that's where the government's failure of public policy is going to be so extreme potentially over the next few weeks. And that's why Gabriel mentioned these worries about when we get to Spring Festival, Chinese New Year, towards the end of January, as people leave big cities and go home to villages, what will happen? Yeah, and that's actually something we have seen Chinese doctors uh, and medical professionals speaking about on the Chinese news. You know, they are concerned that when the migration time comes in Chinese New Year, that there will be really difficult spread in rural areas. And actually, if you watch the Chinese news, you can see that there's also a troubling lack of preparation and, and even lack of awareness in a lot of rural villages about the risks of what could happen. So here's one example from the Beijing news. And there's one reporter who went back to his hometown in Sichuan at the end of December. We see him going home and he talks about how almost everyone in his own family has gotten sick recently. And then he starts asking elderly people in this very rural village 
uh, about you know what has been going on, and and they talk about how yeah we've been getting sick, we have fevers, we have coughs, we have aches and sores and so on. You men understand when he says, do you know much about COVID? Do you think it's COVID? They just say, oh, no, no, it can't be COVID. I mean, if it was COVID, it would be much worse. All we need to do is put on more clothes and we'll be fine. And they, they don't seem to be aware that there is this crisis happening and that this virus is now spreading rapidly throughout the whole country. You see the reporter speaking to this very small and frail, wrinkled old man, and he asks him, you know, do you know about COVID? He says, yeah, I do, but I don't have it. He says, you know, do you have flu medicine? And, you know, he's like, I have ginger. Finally, you can see the reporter in this very, very remote rural part of China. And he's talking to an old woman and she shows him the medicine she already has at home. She already has all kinds of conditions because she's quite elderly. And like many villages in China, it's mostly elderly people. They're living alone. He says, what happens if you get sicker? She says, I'll get more medicine um, or I'll go to the village doctor. And he says, what if the village doctor can't cure you? And she says, well, if they can't do anything, then so be it. I mean, my my children are all very far away. They're thousands of miles away in, in Yunnan and in Shenzhen. And so if I die, I die. And then you can see the reporter just says, you know, don't say that. You know, your your health is pretty good. Like, please, you know, d- don't say things like that. There's such a powerful moment, Alice. You see this, you know, educated reporter from the big city going back to this poor rural village and finding his neighbors and loved ones so kind of resigned to the idea that there's nothing could be done, and him pleading with them, you know, don't say that. I think one of the things that you see is that the advantage of a political system like China's is that there are no alternative voices saying it didn't have to be like this. That you could have learned lessons from other countries. Look, plenty of countries messed up their COVID management, plenty of countries. But China doesn't have a free press. It doesn't have a political opposition who can say, did it have to be like this? Why are they not stocking up more medicines? Even in villages, could you not have prepared a better, more orderly exit? And that's one of the great strengths of the Chinese propaganda machines, this total censorship and information control, that there's very little discussion and perhaps not that much awareness that This year, 2022, was squandered and wasted. They devoted so much resources to trying to contain this uncontainable virus rather than preparing for an exit. Yeah, that information control is really what makes the China situation different from everywhere else. As we know, there are many deaths happening in China, but the only publicly acknowledged ones happen to be well-known scholars, celebrities, opera singers, because when they die, their institutions are, are writing obituaries for them, but even some of those are now being deleted. And social media posts expressing anger, even if it's a small minority of people in China who are finding these deaths political, they are trying to speak out and they are complaining online, but those posts also are are being quickly deleted. And so you can see this whole censorship and propaganda machine, you know, swinging into full action again, like we've seen throughout this whole pandemic. 
the sad result is that the debate that should be happening is not happening. You know, the public debate about what went wrong, what lessons should have been learned. You know, why is this tragedy happening? Could it have been prevented? Should we institute some kind of reform? All of that isn't happening. And Alice, even having that scientific debate now would save lives. You know, there is uh, evidence that the vaccination campaign is actually dropping off. Fewer people are getting vaccinated now than last week or the week before, which is just insane because they still don't have enough old people vaccinated. You saw the European Union offer advanced vaccines targeting the Omicron variant for free. And the Chinese foreign ministry said, we don't need it. China has ample vaccine supplies. You saw the Chinese embassy in France saying that, well, the boss of Pfizer had his own vaccines and he got sick with COVID, which is an anti-vaxxer talking point because no one says that those vaccines stop you getting a mild infection. And so it's as if China is refusing even now to learn lessons about how to stop future preventable deaths as fresh waves of this virus hit the country. Yeah, and this discussion about you know the lack of reflection, the lack of reform, and the lack of change in how public health policy is made in China, that's exactly what we'll be talking about next with our guest, Yan Zhonghuang. He is a public health expert based in the U.S., and he wrote an essay in The Economist a few weeks ago on the terrible results of putting politics before science in China's fight against COVID. To read his essay and to read Gabriel's reporting and all of our coverage on what's happening with COVID in China right now, you can subscribe to The Economist. To do that, just go to economist.com slash drum offer, and that's where you'll find the best introductory rate. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Drumtire. We're asking whether the current chaos we see in Chinese hospitals is a natural disaster or whether it's partly man-made. Does it reflect a long history of politics and secrecy trumping science? Yan Zhonghuang is a professor of global health at Seton Hall University in New Jersey and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I wanted to talk to him because he's an expert on the politics of public health policy in China. And actually, way back in the early 2000s, he analyzed the SARS outbreak in China, which was another infectious, deadly respiratory virus that killed hundreds of people. And if you look at what happened during the SARS outbreak, you find that China's political system and the incentives in it led to a cover-up and a crisis, even though Chinese scientists and the disease detection system were actually working pretty well. In the absence of fundamental changes in the political system and a comprehensive epidemic control plan, not only is the same pattern of cover-up and inaction likely to be repeated, but the government will find it increasingly difficult to control the multiple public health challenges it's now facing. That is the prediction I made 18 years ago. 
we are facing the same question again. And the reason why Yan Zhong says we're facing the same issues is because back when SARS happened, China's scientists they detected that there was this new disease spreading around China, and they wanted to report it, but they were told to keep quiet because it was a politically sensitive time. Within weeks, panic. Healthcare systems around the world are in crisis. The virus, still a mystery, has proven deadly. The Chinese doctor is dead, and soon more than 700 others will die of severe acute respiratory syndrome (SARS). Almost as quickly as the virus spread, the demand for answers grew. It was becoming clear the disease had been festering for months in southern China. Why had there been no warnings, no alerts? How was the virus allowed to escape? The public was kept in the dark about it. People who tried to speak up and ask questions about what was happening were silenced. That caused a crisis to some degree for the Chinese system back in the early 2000s, and it did spark some conversation about the need for reform. In fact, Chinese government researchers who were funded by the WHO did a study on China's health system shortcomings, and there were even reports in state media admitting that China's health reforms have not succeeded. After SARS, we saw a huge ramp up of spending on public health. The health system became stronger. The disease detection system became stronger, but the fundamental political system didn't change. And if anything, under Xi Jinping, China's system has gone more towards secrecy and concentration of power and politics being prioritized above science. After the Wuhan outbreak, there was indeed an internal discussion on how they should prevent that from happening again. The advice, including giving more authority to China CDC, but what we found is the CDC, instead of becoming a policy-making body, now is being demoted and merged into the、uh, Disease Control Bureau of the National Health Commission. Essentially, become like a research organization. And secondly, but there's no serious discussion of the political and institutional causes of the problem. And it's a similar problem, you know, during the COVID era, where we saw local governments acting more Catholic than the Pope in terms of the single-minded pursuit of zero COVID policies like mass PCR testing, quarantine, and lockdowns. These institutional loopholes they should be addressed if we want to avoid this tragic in Wuhan, in Shanghai, to be repeated. So Yenzhong just talked about the CDC. That's the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That's exactly the same name as the American body that is meant to spot dangerous diseases, and that's not an accident. Because after the shock of SARS, actually you saw this bright spot of real global cooperation. You saw the American government, other governments pouring money and top scientists into China to help them build their own CDC. But as Professor Huang says. It was then demoted, and in fact, during the last year in the COVID pandemic, its boss was basically forced into retirement after he suggested that Chinese vaccines were not effective enough. Yeah, essentially, the problem in the Chinese system is that scientists and professionals are not being given the space to speak and to say what they really think and to say what China really should do. If they say something that goes against what the political leaders think, then they're punished. This is the problem we had during the zero COVID era. You know, basically only one voice is allowed. 
scientists were talking about the coexistence with the virus in the summer 2021, they were immediately silenced because zero COVID enjoyed that kind of hegemony in this narrative. But, you know, another point that Yan Zhong made, which actually goes well with what you just brought up, David, the cooperation between America and China, Yan Zhong was saying that that kind of cooperation on public health was something really positive that was able to exist for a long time despite you know, political differences and tensions. And he says that the international community should do its best to try to resume that kind of collaboration. My favorite example is that after Tiananmen 1989, right, the, the United States signed agreement with China's Ministry of Health transferring the hepatitis B vaccine. That saved the millions of people's lives. So this is an example that we can separate politics from public health. The problem here is this politicization right, of public health because there's deteriorating bilateral relationship that directly affecting the trust between China and the Western countries. So it is time to rebuild trust. It is time to renew the dialogue. If you believe that China is an important actor in global health governance, we have to engage China. It's so important what Professor Huang just said. You know, China is a really important global health actor. You cannot stop the next pandemic without proper cooperation from China. And the good news is there are some really, really excellent Chinese scientists. But what we saw with zero COVID is that that desire to beat the virus with control was so powerful as an ideological statement of the vision of China that Xi Jinping had and had to be kept in place in order to deliver a successful 20th Party Congress where Xi Jinping got his third term in office, that that trumped the science. And it's that ideology over science that is leading to another collapse in trust in China. If this political problem is not solved, if scientists are not given real agency and the chance to lead, then these crises will repeat. We see COVID blowing through China right now, but it's not over yet. Something I've been hearing from a lot of Chinese friends is, oh, maybe the virus will will spread, everyone will get infected, and by March or April, China will be back to normal. But when I was speaking with Professor Huang, he actually said that is a mistaken idea because the virus is still mutating and spreading. People will get reinfected, and there is a need for vaccination now. You can't just think everyone will get infected and it'll be over. We still need vaccines. We still need a serious plan. And if the international community can do anything to support those Chinese scientists who are trying to do a good job and prepare those plans, it won't only be good for China, it'll be good and critical for the entire world. We're going to return to this subject again. Hopefully I'm going to get out onto the ground and do some reporting because trying to explain China right now has never been so important. Thanks for sending us so many good ideas for future episodes. For your questions and suggestions, we are reading them all and we would love to hear from more of you. Tell us things we haven't considered or questions you have about China. And if you have something to say, record a voice note or write a message and send it by email to drum at economist.com. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more Drum Tower next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell produced this episode with Barkley Bram. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. Music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Sandra Schmoli.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.